Good morning, everyone. This is Craig Lesner with the Government Finance Officers Association, and you are looking at and ready, getting ready to hear an awful lot about how do California pensions measure up nationally. Uh, we'd like to welcome you to this broadcast, uh, this early broadcast talking about pensions, um, part of our normal webinar series. Um, uh, if you would like to CPE credits for this webinar, um, you may be used to um, having um, answered that question um, during the registration process. And so some of you may have already done that, but we had a little snafu with the registration process. So please keep in mind that post-webinar, um, there will be a survey. And part of that survey, one of the survey um, questions will be, do you want CPE credits? So please make sure that if you do indeed want CPE credits, that you take that post-webinar survey. Um, as well, there's the normal questions about how could we improve and what sort of value this particular webinar was for you today. So please, you know, by all means, take that just for those reasons as well. Um, but again, if you would like CPE credits for this morning's webinar, please take the post-webinar survey that will be initiated as soon as we conclude this morning's webinar. On that note, I'd like to get us started, and I'd like to introduce everyone for you today. Um, again, just to kind of go through just the, the major topics of, of what we're discussing today, how do California pensions measure up nationally? Um, you know, some of the questions we want to try to address, and then by all means, if you have questions during this webcast, please, um, submit them and we'll try to include them to the extent possible. Um, and if, if you have a question, most likely other people have questions too. So please don't feel, please feel free to, to ask questions as they come up. Um, how have California pensions performed relative to expectations? And, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. And what are the discussions around pensions across the state? Secondly, how does this performance measure against the national backdrop? Excuse me. How does this performance measure against a national backdrop, and how can this information be utilized to inform California-specific discussions? The presenters we have today are starting off with Todd Towser, who's Vice President and Consulting Actuary with Siegel, um, Kurt Schneider, who's uh, Supervising Pension Actuary with CalPERS, and we'll affectionately refer to him as Dan M., um, Finance Director of Newport Beach, California, and he'll be working on really trying to bring this um, to life for us um, in local government and what does all these, these numbers mean and, and all these discussions we're about to have today. Again, my name is Craig Lester. I'm with GFOA, and I'm administering this session for CSMFO as well as the future webinars, and so hopefully uh, we'll get to know each other a little bit more as we get more involved. Um, as we go forward, please, again, if you have questions, feel free to submit them, and I'll be working behind the scenes to include them um, in today's broadcast. Um, but we'd like to get started off with just a really quick question about um, how many persons are participating in uh, your, your um, registration site today. So we'll take just one minute to go through this. Um, so please, obviously, uh, take your time. Count the people if you would like to or if you need to. We just got about 30 seconds left for this particular webcam.
in just about 10 more seconds and we'll close and we'll move on. So that's just about one more one minute and so we're closing it out and it looks like the vast majority of folks are looking at this webinar today by themselves um, and a couple people have multiple pe groups with them or, or not multiple groups but groups with them so uh, thank you and welcome to ev welcome everyone that's joining us today and on that note I'd like to hand it over to um, excuse me while I have some technical issues um, as I move it over to Todd Taser Todd take it away all right, thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, as mentioned, I'm Vice President and Consulting Actuary with Siegel, so I work with pension plans up and down the state of California, both at the county, the city level. We also, also work with the UC retirement system. And a little bit more background on me is I came originally from CalPERS. Actually, Kurt and I, I had some crossover time there. I, I spent about 10 years there, five different positions uh, my, my final position there was as a senior pension actuary. And what was interesting for me at CalPERS is a lot of actuaries, after they become actuaries, they can choose to specialize, get a fellowship in a particular area. And for pension actuaries, most of them specialize in pensions. But I got to take a different route. I, I specialized in enterprise risk management with a bit of a focus on pensions. So that's the perspective that I get to bring to the table. And it's been interesting throughout my career to look at pensions from this risk assessment perspective identifying risks and evaluating them and just determining how to manage them over time. And so after I left CalPERS, I, I moved over to S&P Global Ratings, a rating agency. And with S&P, what they were realizing was for pensions across the nation, they were becoming much a much bigger strain on, on the budget, on a burden on the budgetary process. Contribution rates were rising and they wanted to understand how it would impact the budget and, and future ramifications. And so they they created a brand new position. They called it Director of Municipal Pensions and hired me on there. And I essentially got to go and train over 200 analysts on how to look at pension plans across the nation, look for key risk factors, and try to understand, all right, based on the decisions made for funding that pension, for, for managing it, what does it look like going forward? Is there going to be increased costs or is it going to be more healthy and sustainable over time? So that's the perspective that I'm bringing. And so the agenda, this agenda is just for my, my portion of the slides. I'm going to spend a, a, a brief amount of time just on these first two points, the California governance model, as well as California benefit levels. And then the majority of my presentation is going to be on this detailed national comparison of funding health. So as I said, when I worked for S&P, we, we had access to a lot of data there. So in evaluating pension plans across the nation, we developed certain risk metrics and we we built those out. So I'm going to share some of those with you today. Of course, I'm no longer an employee of S&P Global Ratings, so I have to be clear. I'm not speaking on their behalf. I'm not representing them here. I'm just taking some of the, the data that they've made public and sharing it with all of you and giving some some of my personal perspective on what's going on there. And then I think I'm going to turn it over to Kurt at that point to talk about CalPERS, and then I'll come back towards the end and talk about some of the local county and city plans across the state. So that's the agenda and we can dive right in. So as far as governance model goes, just around 1990s, the early 1990s, there were, there were a couple interesting things going on as far as, as pension plans in California. One was that the state tried to take what's called the actuarial function 
from CalPERS, this is CalPERS in particular, and move it to the state. So they tried to make it so that they could set the assumptions that go into, into plan funding. They could set how the contributions were determined. I think that was the key there. They could set how the contributions were determined. And a, and a, a second thing that was going on at the time was they were considering taking assets out of the pension system to use for other purposes. So to treat essentially CalPERS as a big uh, piggy bank to take money out of. So the, the voters rose up at that time. And in 1992, they, they passed the California Pension Protection Act, which gave pension governance to independent retirement boards. So they said, no, the state can't come and, and determine all these things for themselves. So CalPERS, the CalPERS board, the independent retirement board would have to be able to make those decisions and for other plans across the state as well. Uh, so these boards set funding policy, they set assumptions and they determine contribution rates. So that's very, very important that it's apart from entities that are paying like the state itself into the plan. And it also prohibited raids on pension assets. So those, those assets are set aside and protected so that they can serve their purpose as funding pension benefits. The other important part about governance in California is pretty much all pension plans are required to calculate actually determined contributions and then that those contributions must be met every year in full. That may sound a bit obvious, but for, for some states in the country, that's not true. They, they may get a contribution rate and say, no, that's too expensive, we'll pay half this year, especially when you're an important entity like the state itself. And that can lead to a lot of problems. So the, the conclusion here is I think California actually has a strong governance framework um, in terms of managing pension plans at a high level. And then on, on benefit levels, it's it's no mystery that around the turn of the century, there was SB 400, AB 616, these measures were passed that increased benefits significantly uh, for employees. And they also did a retrospectively, right? So it, for, for service that had already been earned in the past, these benefits were applied. So significant increases there. And then going forward, pension reforms that, that are created can only apply to future hires. So benefit increases were applied to everyone and then reforms were only applied to new hires. And that created a bit of a mismatch in terms of benefit levels. And so this is one survey, pensionrights.org. They did a survey for average pension benefits across types. And in their category that was state and local governments, the average pensioner was receiving about 18,000 per year in 2017. At the same time, CalPERS average pensioner was hovering at about 30,000. And I'm not even claiming that these are uh, perfectly apples to apples comparisons. There, there may be some nuances that were different among these two surveys, but I think it's pretty fair to say that California benefits are higher than average. And it, that's also not saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing. In fact, CalPERS, California cost of living is also much higher than average. So in a sense, it makes sense, uh, but it is a, a challenge and a headwind when you're talking about funding pension contributions. So moving on from there, I'm gonna go into a section where I talk about a bunch of survey information provided by S&P Global Ratings. And this is all around risk metrics for pension plans. So I'm gonna start with 50 states and then towards the end, I'm gonna do a few slides on looking at the largest cities as well. So a, a bit of a shift in perspective, but really lessons learned upfront, just what we learned when we went through this process is at S&P was there's an extreme diversity in planned funding and planned health. Even you could say planned sustainability. 
based on many decisions that had been made in the past and factors. And when, when you get into the details, I think it's fair, at least from my perspective, to say the primary cause of diversity in funding health is this term that we like to use, uh, funding discipline. And by funding discipline, it's how are contributions set and are they made in on time and full every year? What are the funding methods behind those contributions? And what are the assumptions used to value those liabilities? So those are all concepts of this term I like to call funding discipline. So with that, let's just dive in. And first, just to give a little bit more uh, background on S&P's approach, I throw up this slide because, not because we care so much about S&P's specific approach in a vacuum, but it's important to note that 10 or 20 years ago, all of the rating agencies, S&P, Moody's, Fitch, when they, they came live, they all had much more of a, what is an immediate focus? So what's the cost today? When looking at plans, they, they would, Say, all right, how much are they paying towards the pension plan? All right, 5% of the total budget, that's not too bad. Let's move on. And so that was the kind of the view in, in the long past. And so in the last 10 years or so, there's been a much greater focus towards understanding a more holistic perspective, a forward-looking perspective, if you will. And that's actually why I got hired, why they created that position, Director of Municipal Pensions, because they wanted to know not just what are today's costs, but are those reasonable costs or are they deferring costs in the future and are they going to blow up? In the future, so you got to add to that that funding discipline, um, understanding, looking at the key methods going into the practices, the the assumptions, and then what will that lead to in terms of future costs? Will it be sustainable and affordable in the future, or is it going to blow up in the future? So that that's the important perspective that I think rating agencies have, have really taken on in the last five years or so. SMP actually just published um, some guidelines for their analysis of pension funding. I'll go through them really fast because it's it's not the focus of this presentation, but a funding goal 100%, all plans should target getting to 100% funding. That may seem obvious, but again, that's not true. There are some specific funding policies out there that do not target 100% funding and it gets plans into trouble. They look at a discount rate of 6.5%, um, which is actually getting closer to where plans are. Plans are continuing to go down. A lot of plans right around 7% now. Uh, actual contribution, this is a metric where they look at a specific contribution in a given year and they just want to see, is that contribution effective, effectual at paying down some of the unfunded liability or is it not? And so I'll show you some information regarding that. And then on longevity, people are simply living longer than they used to be. And in the past, pension plans didn't do a great job of anticipating future longevity improvements. And so that would mean more liability and more cost for pension plans. And so plans that are doing a better job now of anticipating that are in better shape going forward. And then of course on amortizations, they simply, I'll focus on the first two, closed means not refinanced every year, which is very important in CalPERS past, even at CalPERS plans were, unfunded liability was refinanced every year and that led to growing unfunded liabilities. And then a, a, a short enough length to make the contribution actually effectual. So with that, not spending too much time on this, let's look at some of the actual data. Oh, Craig, we have a polling question before we dive in. We do, and so let me get that going for us, guys. So today's second polling question is going to be essentially a very short, complete the statement. So according to you, here, let me get this going. Uh, pensions in California, as far as what you know, um, are they performing better than the national average, worse than the national average, 
right at the national average. And this is my personal favorite. Not sure, but it has to be better than Illinois, right? So just inside, someone inside joke, but Illinois, where um, I'm located today, um, is notorious for, for bad pension funding. And so I just want to make all, all the Californians and all the other members um, joining us today that is whatever you feel about California pensions, it cannot be possibly worse than living in the state of Illinois. So at least you got that going for you. But here we go, just real quick. And this will also be open for just one minute. Um, hopefully you don't need that long, but we'll make sure that everyone has an opportunity to get in on it. And just about 30 seconds have gone by, which means we've got about 30 seconds left. And just for the record, the uh, while we are getting some responses from Illinois, we're not getting an awful lot, but still. So it's just about a minute has gone by. Um, so we're going to close out this poll and just go through. And I'll see, every time I do that, it does this to me. All right. Todd, I'm going to take back control just real quick. Um, and just uh, just to kind of go through these briefly, so 42% uh, believes that the California pension is better than average, 20% is worse than the national average, 29% right at the national average, and 9% is just not sure, but it sure as heck's got to be better than Illinois. All right, so I believe I have control again. Yes, so this the first set of, of data here it follows directly with that poll. Uh, just looking at funding levels across the nation, as, as was indicated, you can find Illinois in the, in the darkest blue. There, there are simply two, two states here that are in this dark blue, which is under 40% funded. It's the worst category, but I, I do want to make the point that when you hear the news, when you hear pensions in the news, it, it's almost always the sky is falling, all pensions are doomed. Um, and you, you look at the data here, and, and it doesn't really support that. Now, under 40% funded is quite bad for a pension system, but you have two out of 50 states. And if you even if you look at the next category, the, the solid blue, if you will, from 41 to 60 percent, you have a handful of plans there. But again, it's it's not that many. It's not the vast majority of plans. The vast majority are either the light blue or almost the gray color, uh, which is the 61 to 80 percent funded and then the 81 and above. And, and those plans, it's not to say that they're in perfect shape. They have nothing to worry about. But but when you hear this catastrophic uh, information that's coming out of the news. You have to take it with a grain of salt and understand that there are plans all over the place, depending on a lot of things, and some are doing quite well compared to others. So this is just a quick summary. Here's the best five funded states in the nation and the worst five. And when I was at S&P, 
because in the news we always got we always heard about the the worst funded states and how terrible they're doing i, I asked if i could do a, a short little research paper on the best five states to understand what what were the best five doing what why were they doing so well and and do kind of a, a flip side of, of the news if you will and i got to do that so it, it was interesting the the best five states had three things all in common in terms of their pension plans the first was that all five of these states had lower than average uh, discount rates. So more conservative discount rates. The second was all five of these states used generational mortality, which is a way to anticipate future longevity improvement, as I mentioned. Both of these things, discount rates and generational mortality are conservative assumptions. They, they mean that actually liability goes up. So it's kind of counterintuitive because they're recognizing more liability up front. So why would they be well-funded if they're recognizing more liability? Well, the third thing was that they also all had effective contributions. So they had, they had shorter amortization periods, they dealt with their unfunded liability and paid it off. So this two-part where you recognize the, the liability in a more realistic way and then proactively deal with it and pay it off has meant that these states, they may have had higher contributions and may have had to bite the bullet when they were working through that, um, but they come out in much better places in the end, uh, near or at 100% funded with hardly any unfunded liability to deal with and much lower costs in the end. So that was that's the, the best states. On the other hand, the five worst states you can see on the graph, they really just the, the uniting factor for them is they all had a history of deferring necessary contributions one way or another. It's not that they had bad luck in the stock market and had worse investment return than others. No, they, they actually were told to pay an amount and simply did not pay it, or whatever they were told to pay was some statutory number that didn't really reflect on growing liabilities and didn't deal with those liabilities. So a very significant difference between the top five and, and the worst five. So diving a bit deeper, now this is a change in funding progress uh, from one year to the next, this is 2017 to 2018. And so this is this is kind of the, the next level down in terms of details. I, I do have to mention that this is, since this is S&P data, they do everything on a an accounting basis. So this is, these are GASB numbers for funded status. And what happens when you look at GASB numbers is some plans, I don't know how much the audience is familiar with this, but there's a crossover test that goes on to determine if the plan's gonna run out of money for the for the current employees they have. And if if they're projected to run out of money, they're not allowed to use a full a discount rate, a full expected return discount rate of 7%. They have to use a lower discount rate. And when they use a lower discount rate, then their funded ratio is, is gonna be much lower. So that's, that's all the detail I'll give there, but it, it kind of explains these first four states. Because they, they grew 10, 15, 20, percent in terms of funded status in one year but if you look at the dark blue that's indicating it how the discount rate changed so to the right of the axis means the discount rate increased and no one's actually increasing their discount rates in this environment but what happened was they had a crossover test they, they were running out of money in 2017 and then they looked better in 2018 so they got to use a, a higher discount rate uh, with the crossover test and so they appeared much better funded so uh, the main point there is that the top four states are not really uh, good indications of what's going on from a funding discipline perspective. It's just that, that because they improved their crossover test, they got to use a higher discount rate. 
the interesting thing is that California is the fifth best state. It's the first state you have up there that did not uh, increase their their discount rate over this time period. So that is significant. Plan that did not increase their discount rate, but improved in funded status by almost 5%. And by California, this is, by the way, a mixture of both CalPERS and CalSTRS. It's the state plans. The other, the other interesting thing to note here is when you see the discount rate to the left of the line, that means these states actually lowered their discount rate in that year. And yet you still have some states that while lowering the discount rate and increasing liabilities, were able to make funding progress. So you could see, I think it's Arizona and Wyoming on this graph. That's that's also impressive when at the same time as lowering the discount rate, they're, they're still making progress and funding their plan. So diving one step deeper, this is I think the most complex we'll get. So the last slide had to do with or funding progress from one year to the next. And one of the main reasons for funding progress is how effective is the contribution rate for each of these state plans. And so I'll, I'll go through this graph in a couple sections. First of all, if you look towards the bottom, the worst states, you see a lot of orange there. So normally when, when a state plan, when a state is contributing to their, their pension plan, there's two parts to that contribution. The first is the normal cost or service cost, if you're talking in Gatsby language, and that's just all their employees earning another year of service. And then the second part is trying to pay off this unfunded liability that's built up, catching up on the unfunded liability. And the problem with unfunded liability is it's it's quite expensive. It actually accrues significant interest when it's left alone. And so when, when paying off the unfunded liability, first you have to deal with interest on the unfunded liability, and then you have to get into principal above that. So this gets me to the graph. At the bottom, you see this orange. All the states here were able to at least pay their normal costs. That's, that's the bare, bare minimum looking at. But then the orange is indicating that for these state plans, the contribution coming in did not cover interest on the unfunded liability. This is a term that we call negative amortization. So the orange is indicating how much negative amortization, not covering the interest on the unfunded liability, which means the interest is actually compounding, capitalizing and becoming new unfunded liability. So you can see a lot of state plans are, are still having quite a bit of negative amortization. And I, I do have to remind myself that in this chart, it's only a one year picture. It's not looking at the plan over the next 20 years. So maybe it's something that will change as contributions ramp up for some of these states. But in a one-year picture, um, a lot of the contributions are, are not very effective in this year, which was the 2017-18 fiscal year. Now you can see S&P has a metric. You can see a 100% green line that's coming down. And so they like to see contributions that at least pay service or normal costs all of the interest on the unfunded liability, and then one thirtieth of the principal, just as a rough, let's see a little bit of, of principal paid off on the unfunded liability. So that's 3.33%. And you can see only nine, I think it is, out of the 50 states that, that pass that minimum funding progress metric. And so California is there in the middle. Thankfully, there's no negative amortization right now for them as a whole but they have not reached that 100% that, that minimum funding progress metric. So that they're making a little bit of positive amortization, and, but more to come. In fact, I've looked at this metric over a few years for California, and there was a time when California was 
in the negative am amortization. They, they were in the orange. And so they've been improving over time. And that has to do with both CalPERS and CalSTRS. CalPERS has increased, improved on their funding policy in terms of amortization and made that a lot more tight in terms of contributions and more effective over time. And on CalSTRS, there was a funding plan passed for them about five years ago and it ramped up contributions from all three sources. The employees paid more, are paying more, the, the state is paying more, and the employers are paying more. And that's ramping up over time. That's not even done yet at this point. So that has also helped the California picture in terms of contribution effectiveness. The final thing I'll point out on this graph is if you look by the names of the states, a lot of them have stars uh, after the name, and some of them do not have stars. The stars indicate that all of the plans at the state level are set, contributions are set on an actually determined basis. So that simply means they're looking at the unfunded liability, adjusting based on that unfunded liability and dynamically working to pay it off. Those that don't have stars might have a contribution, a statutory rate. It might just be, we'll pay 8% of our employers, employees' salary every year. And in that case, unfunded liability may grow and, and negative amortization could happen. You can see that a lot at the bottom. There's a lot of states that don't have stars and they have the, the most negative amortization. California also does not have a star, but that's because CalSTRS is one of the two and they're, they're ramping up towards an actually determined contribution, but they're not there yet. So California could change in the future. So a lot of information here, but I, I think it's pretty interesting and telling of, of what's going on at the state level. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and look at uh, 15 cities. This is the 15 largest cities in the nation. This is simply by population, um, not by anything else. Out of the 15, we have four cities that are um, in California. And you can see, so the, the national average for funding ratio was in the low 70s, about 73%. And three out of the four for California were above that, especially looking at San Francisco and Los Angeles. But I think the the story to tell here is if you look at a city like Chicago, we'll, we'll keep on the Illinois subject line, thanks to Craig. If you look at Chicago, it's it's doing quite poorly, right? It's it's between 20 and 30 percent funded right now. They're one of these cities that have deferred contributions over and over again and have had poor statutory contribution requirements. And a lot of that has always been in the name of affordability. We're going to keep contribution rates where they are. We're going to keep them low because if we increase them, it's not going to be affordable um, and that'll, that'll hurt the budget of the city. But then what happens when you keep contributions low in the name of affordability? So going on to the next page, we'll look at, this is fixed cost, percentage of total expenditures, uh, looking at pensions, a debt service, and then finally OPEB, so retiree health. And you can see Chicago is off the charts in terms of fixed costs. They've, they're over 45% of their total budget is dedicated to these three areas. And just the pensions alone, the total budget is, is near nearing 35%. And not only that, so, well, so first I should say, so in the name of affordability, these plans, this plan with Chicago has become very unaffordable, but not only that, they're, they're at 20 three, 24% funded. So they're at the very bottom of a steep mountain. So that's gonna climb dramatically over time as they actually work towards funding their pension plan. So this is just the beginning of the contribution rate when it comes to Chicago. 
The other important thing to mention on this graph is the, the light blue, the, the post-retiree health benefits. They all look pretty small right now, but it's important to realize that most of these plans are funded on a pay-as-you-go basis, which means there's no assets set aside. And whenever a new retiree comes into the picture or his or her benefit goes up, that, that money comes straight out of the budget of the city. And so with more baby boomers retiring, with people living longer, with health costs increasing, all these things are going to come together and make retiree health benefit costs rise dramatically for cities over time. So that, that blue, that light blue is dramatically understated right now. But it is important if you look at a, let's see on here. Yeah, we have Los Angeles on here. They're, they're actually the biggest bar right now for light blue. It means they're paying the most in the plan. That might look bad. But the reason for it is they're a, a city that has actually decided we're going to pre-fund our benefits. So they, they put in a plan over the next 20 years, their OPEB plan should become 100% funded. I think they're over halfway there already. And so they're paying a lot into the plan now. But it's like those the top five uh, states that I mentioned before. They're, they're doing it on a proactive basis. They're taking on the extra cost now. And so they're going to actually fund their plan. And while these other bars are going to grow dramatically in the future, there shouldn't because of that pre-funding. So again, a theme of proactivity and, and what that gets you for cities and states. This is the same metric I showed for the states, the minimum funding progress metric. Unfortunately, S&P decided to use different colors for this one, so hopefully that's not con too confusing. But here you have the ones at the bottom that have the dark blue. That, in this case, is negative amortization, reflects that the contributions going in aren't enough to cover interest on the unfunded liability. The light blue is cities that are actually paying more than just the interest and making progress towards paying off their unfunded liability. And you have five states passing that 100% line, which is the S&P minimum funding progress metric. What, what I think is important to note here is when we're talking about California, look in all four of the California cities are not in negative amortization. So they're actually, once again, like California as a whole, they're they're paying off more than interest on their unfunded liability and making progress towards full funding, which is a very important concept. And two out of the four are actually above this minimum funding progress metric. So I'm going to shift gears. I have two more slides on, on cities, and I'm going to give a couple different perspectives beyond just the, the basic data. So this first perspective is is a demographic perspective. So it's important. I mean, we've been talking about it as actuaries for a while now, but plans are simply getting more mature over time. There's a larger and larger base of retirees compared to active members. And of course, active members, active payroll, that's typically where the contributions flow through. Both the active members are contributing and the employers are contributing. Um, but we have this large base of retirees that's growing compared to that. So when you have a large base of retirees, you're going to have a large uh, buildup of assets to cover those retirees. And then when the stock market goes up and down and, and shows its volatility, those assets are bound to gain a lot and lose a lot and just simply move around a lot. So we say that the road gets bumpier as your plan gets more mature. Another way to say that is as a plan gets more mature, the contribution rates of the plan get more sensitive to investment volatility. And so that's why we put on this graph, you can see on one axis, the y-axis, we have the, 
the rate of return assumption, that might indicate how much risk is being taken on in the stock market. And then on the x-axis, we have the active to beneficiary ratio, which is one indicator of how mature the plan is. So for example, you look at Indiana, down in the bottom right, Indiana is not very mature of a plan. You can see they almost have three times as many actives as beneficiaries, and yet their discount rate is below 7%. So not necessarily taking on very much risk in their investment portfolio. And you put those two together and they're actually faring well on both accounts. They're lower risk in terms of plan maturity and lower risk in terms of the rate of return assumption. In contrast to that, you look at a place like Columbus, they have an extremely high discount rate, or at least they did uh, at the time of the survey of, of 8%. And they have just about as many actives as retirees, so a much more mature plan. And so that plan is likely to be much more sensitive to investment volatility, and they might have more investment volatility because of what they're, they're assuming as a rate of return. So one perspective on how to kind of analyze some of these additional features that, that go into pension, plan, pension plans. So one other perspective I have here is more of an economic perspective, looking at local economies. And a couple things going on in this graph, I'll break it down one by one. And this is my last graph. If, if you've had too much data so far, I love this stuff, but uh, we're, we're coming close to an end here. So the, the size of the circle on this graph is the amount of uh, net pension and OPEB unfunded liabilities per capita. So per person, that's the size of the, the pension and retiree health liabilities. So you can see places like Chicago, New York, and San Francisco, those three have a lot of unfunded liabilities per capita. With New York, I can already say a lot of that for them is actually in their retiree health. They have a very, very large uh, unfunded liability for retiree health. But so, so that's just the size of the circles. Now, if we look at the axes, on the y-axis, you have per capita value. You can almost think of that as net worth for an individual in a way. And so the higher they are on the scale, the Maybe you could say the richer people are on average. I mean, this is just one metric. It's not an absolute metric. But um, so you can see San, for San Francisco, for example, even though they have a significant amount of net pension and OPEB liabilities uh, per capita, they also have people who are very well off. So perhaps San Francisco has ways they can uh, raise revenue and, and get more money to fund those pensions. This is all just a perhaps, but of course, a way to analyze these plans. And then if you look at the x-axis, this is real gross metro product, and it's the projected growth rate of that product. You can almost think of it as miniature GDPs for a local area. And so if you look at, say, Philadelphia, Jacksonville, Dallas, Phoenix, and Houston, they're all pretty similar size circles, pretty similar uh, unfunded liabilities per capita, and pretty similar values in terms of uh, net worth per person, if you will. But when you look at the potential growth rate over time in these regions, Philadelphia versus Houston, for example, Houston has a lot more capacity or anticipated growth rate, and that might help generate revenues to help fund these pensions as well. So again, demographic perspective, here's an economic perspective. This is all just ways to, to look at the, the pension plans and, and the characteristics surrounding those plans and, and identify risk factors that I think is, is quite interesting going forward. Hey, Todd, before one. we go off to...
to the polling question. Can, can, we're getting a question or two from the audience. Do we mind going back to here? Just this shot. Um, is, uh, two questions here. Um, are, would you say, or in your opinion, do you think California cities are paying more because CalPERS is requiring it? Or what's, what's prompting um, you know, the California cities themselves to be on the higher end of the spectrum? The higher end of, of cost as a percentage of budget? Or, uh, or just they're they're paying more and paying more into the system as opposed to having the negative amortization. Maybe it's sure. this, this one. So yeah, yeah, it's it's not really the the maturity graph, but yeah, in general, California is paying more into the system, and I touched on that at the beginning. One one reason is simply I think higher cost of living and higher benefits than average compared to some other places in the nation. Again, that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's it's the way it is here. But in addition to that, California, I, I brought up earlier on with the states, I talked about the five best states in terms of pension funding discipline. And I talked about early on, they were very proactive in having a conservative assessment of liabilities and then having a good amortization, a good contribution policy and paying it off. So California is one of those states where earlier on, they didn't really do that. Their, their amortization policy was not great. They allowed a lot of negative amortization, which allowed the unfunded liability to build up. Um, but over time, they have done a lot of steps in tightening that down and reducing the discount rate and having much more conservative mortality assumptions. And even in the amortization recently, they moved to a 20-year level dollar, which is a, a pretty conservative amortization schedule. So they've done all of this tightening. And the, the, the tough part about tightening is in the process, it means costs go up in the short term. Uh, I mean, you can almost think of it as no good deed goes unpunished in the sense as they happen, costs go up dramatically, but they're very necessary. If, if that doesn't happen, it's going to be like the Chicago picture where the funding status continues to decline and the costs over the long run continue to go up with all this tightening costs in the short to medium term go up, but unfunded liability actually gets dealt with. And over long term, it's actually much more sustainable and healthy for the plan. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and then on that note, to keep to our time schedule, we're going to go right into our next polling question, um, which is, how does your organization set its annual payment? Um, and the choice selections, uh, the organization pays the minimum required payment, pays more, and I'm not sure of the level of payment my organization pays each year. And again, we'll leave it open for just about a minute, and we're in in it for about 20 seconds now. Just a little bit under 30 seconds left for this poll question. And just about 10 seconds left. And that will do it. That's just about a minute. And so let me share the answers to this just briefly. Um, 
48%, uh, pretty split actually. 48% uh, pays the minimum required payment. About 45% um, state that their organization pays more than the minimum, and only about 7% is not sure, which is probably why you're you're you know getting more involved and in trying to learn more about pensions and why you're you're participating in this this webcast. So uh, welcome and thank you very much uh, for your participation. And hopefully after this you'll you'll either you know start to know where to look or or find out where your organization is doing and and how that impacts your budget and accounting, CAFR, and, and the uh, other impacts to your organization. But with that being said, um, I'd like to hand over the reins to Kurt Schneider, who is um, the sur supervising pension actuary with CalPERS. And he'll be talking a little bit more, again, continuing this conversation about how California pensions uh, measure up nationally. Just let me hide that just for a second. And Kurt, the floor is yours. Todd, you may need to take your uh, uh, off mute. Yeah, I was going to say, we can't hear you there, Kurt. Uh -oh. There you go. Thank you for unmuting. There you go. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so I'm a pension actuary. I've been with CalPERS for about four years, and as Todd mentioned, we actually overlapped here for uh, a little bit less than a year. Um, before coming to CalPERS, I was an actuary with a, one of the county retirement systems in California, and before that, I was with Siegel, where Todd is now. So there is a lot of overlap in this particular profession. Uh, so. Let me see if I have control. There we go. Uh, so let me talk a little bit about what CalPERS is. Sometimes it's used interchangeably with public retirement systems in California. We are not, we don't cover all of California. Uh, we do have about 2 million members. About 38% of them are school employees. Uh, we're talking about K through 12 public school districts as well as community colleges. And we're not talking about teachers. So we're talking about the other employees. Um, we also cover public agencies. We're talking about counties and cities and districts. Again, not all of them, but most of them in California. And we cover all state employees. Um, so the ones that we don't cover, as Todd has talked a little bit about, um, teachers in K through 12 and community college are in CalSTRS. Uh, the University of California is quite a large uh, retirement system of its own. Um, there's 20 counties that have their own retirement systems and several of the large cities. Um, so we don't cover all public employees in California, but because we cover all state employees, so many counties and cities and agencies, um, we are very conscious of the fact that when we make a decision that affects contribution levels, if we increase contributions, uh, the impact of that uh, we can assume will be felt by every single resident of California because it's going to affect um, the public services that they receive or the cost of those public services. Uh, so what we've done over the last few years is we've uh, tried to build a strong foundation. We've been around since the early part of the 20th century. We expect to be around for another 100 years and more. So one thing we've done is we've lowered the discount rate from 7.5% down to 7%. Uh, that decision was made a few years ago, and public agencies are starting to feel the uh, impact of that. It does 
cause an increase in the contribution rates at the time that we lower the discount rate. But also, we like to point out that there is savings associated with that lower discount rate. Going forward, once you once you do that, once you make the decision to do that, going forward, your investment return is going to be measured against a lower target. Um, so that half a percent in the assumed rate of return, um, when you have $400 billion in So some, we got kicked out there for a second. Hopefully you can hear me still. So no, we can still hear you. Okay. So when that is lowered, um, so we have $400 billion in assets invested. That means each year forward, that extra half percent that we don't need to meet, that translates into a $2 billion better investment return. If we have an investment gain, it's going to be $2 billion better each year. If we have an investment loss, it's going to be $2 billion lost. And those are savings that all the public employers will see in future years. And also, Todd did mention that the discount rate affects the funded ratio. When you lower the discount rate, it lowers the funded ratio. But as Todd showed, over years, the systems with the lower discount rates have the higher funded ratio. And we actually show employers that with our projections that if we lower the discount rate today, um, going forward in about 10 years, that funded ratio would be higher than what it would have been at the higher discount rate. And that's because of the better investment performance relative to your assumed grade return. Uh, we focus uh, very closely on our asset allocation where we try to balance you know, the risks that employers are exposed to with the returns that they're going to benefit from. And we've shortened our amortization period. Uh, we'll talk, Todd's talked quite a bit about that. Uh, very important. And I will talk a little more and more about what CalPERS did. Um, what we did, though, is we changed it prospectively only. So again, we're very conscious that if we shortened the amortization period for the current unfunded liability, employers would see a sharp increase in costs that we didn't want to do necessarily across the board for everyone. So we shortened the amortization period that will be used for new gains and losses starting in 2019 valuation. And also over the last few years, we've um, received significant extra capital from employers that are, want to pay down their unfunded liability faster than required. Todd also talked about that, that right now that is the reason we weren't in negative amortization at the point that um, Todd observed. Oh, there's a little lag here on our uh, slides. Okay, so uh, we do try to, with the asset liability management, um, it's important, the most important thing when it comes to the discount rate and the assumed rate of return is what assets are you invested in? Um, and those decisions are made. Uh, we have a four-year cycle. We review the capital market assumptions, and we look at our current asset allocation and current risks. And we make the board makes a series of decisions on whether that that allocation needs to be adjusted and what that means for a discount rate. And we give public employers and the public uh, advance notice of when these decisions are going to be discussed and made, um, so they know that our next discount rate decision won't be made until the fall of next year. 
um, and won't affect valuations. It's not expected to until uh, the years following that. Uh, so let's go back to the amortization policy. So what we, what it is essentially, it's a set of rules that determines, you know, when you're going to pay off your total unfunded liability. How much do you need to pay this year, and when is it expected to be completely paid off? Um, so at Calpers, it's the actuarial office that studies it and recommends changes, and the board adopts them. Typically, it is the board of the retirement board. Uh, whatever it's called, that makes the decision on that actual policy decision. And I'll get to it, uh, uh, I'll make a point in future on why that's important. Um, so we made changes to our policy in February of 2018, but again, that was prospective and the change did not affect anybody until the uh, June 30, 2019 valuation and only for gains and losses that happened uh, starting with that valuation. Uh, so the reason why we wanted to do it um, is for benefit security. Uh, in the past, public systems have had very long amortization policies under the idea that, well, a government isn't going to go anywhere. They're going to be around forever. It's not like a corporation. They can't just close the doors. Um, but what we've seen, and that's true for states, state can't file for bankruptcy. It's not going to go anywhere. Cities can file for bankruptcy. We've had a couple high-profile bankruptcies. In California, notably Stockton and San Bernardino, uh, they they did uh, cut some of their debt payments, uh, particularly with pension obligation bonds. But they did uh, they did not cut any pension payments to Calpers. They're paying their full uh, Calpers payments, and their retirees are expected to receive their full benefit. But remember, we do have a lot of other special districts and joint powers authority, and all sorts of public employers in California that use Calpers. And some of those have actually uh, vanished. Um, they've disbanded. They've, they have no funding. And there have been cases uh, where CalPERS retirees had their benefits actually cut uh, because there was no funding for these uh, former agencies. Uh, so uh, intergenerational equity, uh, we talked a little bit about it. What that means is that it's considered good public policy for the benefits, the salary and benefits for the current generation of public employees to be paid for by the current generation of taxpayers that's receiving services from those employees. Um, and that, under our old amortization policy, that wasn't exactly happening. Uh, and and uh, back, most notably, back about five or six, seven years ago, the actuarial Industry was sort of uh, changing their recommendations on, on what is considered a good funding policy, and other systems were changing and shortening amortization policy periods. And uh, CalPERS was lagging a little behind some of our other uh, agencies, even in California. Um, so we wanted to get on board with that. So the intergenerational equity issues. In particular, so the GFOA recommends that every state and local government that offers defined benefit pension plans formally adopt a funding policy that provides reasonable assurance that the cost of these benefits is going to be funded equitably and sustainably. Equitably, we're talking about a couple different things, but particularly intergenerational equity. Um, and sustainably, they don't want contributions so low now 
that they're bound to be so high later that they'll be unaffordable later. Um, and the, the language that the GFOA uses is that every state and local government that offers it, we're talking about the employers, the counties and cities that, in my case, participate with CalPERS, not simply the retirement system where these policy decisions are, are always made formally, but it is the agency that's supposed to say, well, how and when are we going to pay for these benefits that we've promised our employees? Uh, so it's good practice that the funding should be achieved during the active service. So you want to pay for the service that people are providing while they're providing the service. Okay. And negative amortization, Paul, uh, Todd talked about that. So what that means is that you can have a, uh, amortization payment on unfunded liabilities that's so small, it doesn't cover the interest, but the interest is accruing all the time. Those benefits are getting closer to being due. Uh, so what that means is that the amount that you're paying towards the principal, if you split it up the way a mortgage payment is split up, the principal payment would be negative. The unfunded liability or the debt is uh, growing over time or expected to. Even with no gain losses, no assumption changes, the payment itself isn't sufficient to decrease the unfunded liability. So the recommendations that we were receiving, um, the earliest one, official one, came from the California Actuarial Advisory Panel. This is something they published back in 2014, I believe, uh, where they said gains and losses should be amortized over something like 15 to 20 years, primarily to, to reduce or eliminate that negative amortization problem. Um, and the American Academy of Actuaries echoed those, those uh, recommendations, as did the GFOA. So... It's universally sort of accepted that you should have these shorter amortization periods. Our policy prior to 2019 um, was that investment gains and losses and non-investment gains and losses were actually amortized over a 30-year period. Uh, that's the main thing that we wanted to address. And the uh, uh, we also had an escalation rate. It's very common in the public sector to have uh, payments on amortization base that increase over time under the assumption that, well, your payroll is increasing too. So these payments towards your unfunded liability should remain relatively stable as a percent of payroll. But what we've seen over the years is that um, when you have uh, gains and losses, you have more losses than gains, or you have assumption changes, you add new layers. So if all of your existing layers are increasing at this 3% a year, Every time you add a new layer, it becomes very difficult for the agency to absorb the cost of that. So that is something that we saw as an issue, and our policy took it a little bit farther than um, some of the other policies. So uh, I have to apologize here. I made a, a mistake with these next two graphs. I have the, uh, the, the text and the uh, uh, graphs switched. So let's see if I can explain this as clearly as I can. So what I wanted to show was how the amortization of an unfunded liability works. Uh, in this example, I used a discount rate of 7%, and I wanted to compare 30-year amortization to 20-year amortization, but I have to flip to the next slide in order to do that because those are the right graphs. So the graph on the left is the um, unfunded liability balance that starts at a million dollars. And if you look at the orange line, if you amortize it over 30 years, where the payments start low and increase at 3% per year, 
those first payments don't cover the interest. And you see that balance growing over time. It actually grows for several years and then starts to decline very slowly for several years. And it takes about 15 years before you get back to where you started. So that first 15 years, you're not amortizing the income liability at all. You're actually amortizing it entirely over a 15-year period, but a 15-year period that's 15 years in the future. So that is where we can clearly see that this is not intergenerational equity. The benefits that accrued now for the workforce now, you look at your average remaining life of your workers, it's probably for most public agencies, at least in California, it's less than 15 years. So your workforce on average is going to be retired before the taxpayer has to start paying down this unfunded liability that's here today. And you're going to eliminate, uh, under 7% anyway, you're going to eliminate this this negative amortization by shortening the period to 20 years. Now you're just basically looking at the last 20 years. You don't have that growth in the unfunded liability to where you have, you know, 1.2, 1. or uh, you know, more than a million dollars to amortize. You're simply amortizing a million dollars over a 20-year period. And if you look at the right graph, there we're showing the payments. So of course, the orange line, you do start out with lower payments, and that's the, why it's an attractive policy. It grows at only 3% per year, which you might think is sustainable, but they wind up higher in the end than what the 20 would have been. And obviously, the total payments are more on the 30-year period than the 20-year period. If you pay it off faster, you're going to save money. This is just like a mortgage on your house. Now, if you want to look at the other thing that we wanted to uh, address was just the escalation rate that you see on those payments on the right-hand side, which I'm going to have to back up to the previous graph where I have the actual graph. Here, again, we're showing 30 years where they increase. The orange line is 3% increase, the same orange line you saw before. But on the blue line, we're using level, uh, the same payment every single year, a level dollar payment, as we call it. So you immediately start to pay off your unfunded liability. And if you look at those payment patterns on the right, yeah, the orange line starts out lower, but it just takes about 10 or 11 years before the uh, orange payments are higher. And we think this is a more sustainable payment pattern because if all of your layers are amortized this way, it gives you a much stronger likelihood that a new loss or a new assumption change could be affordable because you don't have a built-in increase in all of your current layers. All right, so what our amortization policy became after we changed it, the main change was on the gains and losses are now going to be amortized over 20 years instead of 30. It only applies to new bases. Um, and they're also going to be amortized as level dollar amounts with no escalation rates built in. Um, again, we didn't change any of the old layers. Um, just like the discount rate, changing the discount rate uh, costs more now, but sets you up in the future for a much better experience. Um, and these are why we say we haven't, you know, solved all the problems with public pensions, but we have laid uh, a better foundation when we build these amortization layers using this policy in the end we're going to have a, a much stronger system uh okay so we do at calpers we go a little bit beyond board policy when it comes to funding so again i have that same recommendation from the gfoa they're talking about 
the state and local government should have a policy that says how and when they're going to pay off this unfunded liability. And we try to make it very easy. You know, we do need a policy, a one-size-fits-all policy that applies across the board. We have to calculate something when we do evaluation. Uh, but we know that might not be the best practice, might not be the best answer for every single agency. We do encourage them to uh, contribute more and uh, fund their pensions faster if they choose to. And there's three ways, uh, main ways, that we do to allow them to do that. Um, they actually have control of their amortization schedule. So with other statewide systems um, that have some type of cost sharing, usually all of the public employers that are lumped in together pay towards one, one amortization schedule. Um, so everybody's paying the same amount and it's not, uh, there's no way for a public employer in those systems to pay down their UAL any faster. Well, our system, every single employer for every single plan that they have, they might have miscellaneous and safety separate. They have their own amortization schedule and they can decide right now to do what we call a fresh start where all of these layers would be combined into a single layer and amortized over a period that they choose. Um, it has to be short enough. They can't, there's limits on how long they can make it. Um, and what this does is uh, as we laid down these layers, we tried to make them um, any, any individual layer that got laid down, we didn't want it to have a large impact, immediate impact on costs. So we had these uh, ramps that sort of phased in the layer over five years. Um, and we had assumption changes and investment losses to where we had a lot of ramps actually on top of each other um, going up at the same time. And this made, and then we had some very short layers that are going to drop off in a few years. So if you look at the amortization schedule, if it hasn't been touched, and you run it out to see what the pattern of payments is, um, it was all done in an effort to have stable uh, contribution rates and going forward it doesn't look very stable at all you have a very steep increase followed by maybe some sharp drops so by fresh starting it you can have a much smoother pattern of payments you can pay it off sooner you can save money in the long run uh, it might simply be a more preferable payment pattern but again it depends on the agency and they have to look at it themselves and decide what they want to do um, we also let them uh, if they don't want to go that route to simply make an additional payment um, so on their own, they can pay an additional amount any time they want, any amount they want. And one of the ways we handle these is to simply apply it towards an amortization layer that's already there. They're not going to change their period. They're not going to fresh start. They're just going to select one amortization base and reduce it with an extra payment. And another way that um, uh, employers can set aside funding for pensions as well as OPEB benefits is to have a separate Section 115 trust. And CalPERS has tried to make it as easy as possible for employers to do any of those or all three of those. Uh, so the first start I've talked about, uh, I don't think I need to go into it too much. It would um, eliminate all those ramps and stretch out some short bases, shorten some long bases, and give a much smoother pattern of payments, um, but the, the downside is that you can't change your mind later on and go back to the old schedule. Once you do it, that old schedule is gone, and you go forward with that. And we stress over and over everywhere in the valuation and 
throughout our communication with the employer during the year is that the contribution and the valuation is the required minimum contribution. Um, it used to be years ago, we'd set the contribution, they'd pay it under the old accounting rules before GASB 68. You know, if they made the minimum required contribution, they had no liability on their books for pension. Um, that's not the case anymore. The UAL, um, it's called something else and measured slightly differently, but essentially the UAL is on the balance sheet as a, as a long-term liability. And um, <clears throat> the minimum payment may not be all that they want to pay. They may want to reduce that liability. Um, so as for an example, so the state just over the last few years has contributed more than $9 billion above the minimum. Um, they also contributed to the school's pool, the, the pool of assets that covers the school employees, which aren't state employees, they're school district employees. And um, public agencies also contributed, the last couple of years it's been over $500 million a year through various uh, public agencies. Um, and the strategies that they can use when they're setting up these extra payments, um, they can contribute a stable amount each year. So one of the things that um, actuaries have pointed out when they've kind of tried to uh, modernize funding policies is saying that, well, if you, if you amortize it over a long period of time, you can have stable contributions. Um, if you want better intergenerational equity and you want to shorten those amortization policy periods, you're going to have more volatile contributions. Well, CalPERS, we allow employers to do both. You can pay it off over a shorter period of time, but by using these additional payments, you can have a uh, annual payment, total annual payment, that remains stable and predictable over a period of years. Um, you could have a, a fixed payment for the next five years or a payment that increases 2% per year for the next five years. And you can know it in advance now and set your budgets using those payments and have better intergenerational equity and more stable contributions, what we call interperiod equity. Um, and also some employers simply want to pay it off over a shorter period. They don't want to do a fresh start. They want to pay it off over 15 years or 10 years or whatever it is whatever they've decided, they can use those ADPs to do that without doing a fresh start. And they can also fund based on a lower discount rate. We do have agencies that fund uh, based on a 6% discount rate. Those numbers are provided in the valuation. They know what the liability is, the unfunded liability, the normal cost, and they do contribute based on that. So they know that as long as the return is above six, uh, there's no additional loss to pay for it. Uh, but most agencies actually choose this fourth option. Simply, they look at their budget each year. They know they need to pay more towards the pensions, and they pay, you know, what's available um, from from year to year. And Kurt, on, the, on this point, uh, you know, we have a couple more polling questions that we need to get to before the end of the webinar. So, in the interest of, of just time, um, you know, if, if you don't mind, as we go through this last polling question, if you can tell us a little bit about the the 115 trust. But let me launch this real quick. Um, and so, just sure. briefly, does your does your organization contribute to a 115 trust? And hopefully, some of you get my inside joke, of, and you could tell me where I get it from on my third question or third answer. But uh, uh, Kurt, yeah, what, I mean, just can you go briefly through what what 115 trusts are and what what people need to know about them? 
Sure. So it's a separate trust that uh, agencies use to either put money aside for pensions or for OPEB benefits. Um, they're outside the pension fund, so they don't decrease your net pension liability, uh, but it's an asset for pensions anyway. It's an asset that the employer holds on their books. So what CalPERS has done, now you can, you can set these up on your own. You can use a private consultant to do it. But what CalPERS has done with the help of state legislation, um, there was a fund established, a single 115 trust that's administered by CalPERS. It's called the California Employers Pension Prefunding Trust Fund. And what it does is it allows any public employer in California with a defined benefit plan to put money into that trust. So it saves them the startup cost of coming up with a fund and coming up with asset allocation. We give them a, a couple different options for asset allocation. Um, and they're available to all public employers in California, not just CalPERS employers. So these counties and cities um, with their own fund, with, with their own retirement system can actually put money into this CalPERS 115 trust. Um, and it's usually allowed, uh, allows you to put some money aside that you know is going to be used for future pension contributions and then to use it when you, when you need it. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and then, uh, Todd, I know you had a couple more slides that you wanted to address before we uh, turn the mic over to Dan. Yes. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, good. Just checking since we're we're off video right now, but I'll go through these quickly because I know we want to give a little bit of time for for Dan to to give his perspective at a local level as well. So again, these are just the guidelines. So I'm going to skip right over this slide if I can. There we go. Um, so we did a survey of actually see if I can. Okay, perfect. So we did a survey of 16 large pension systems across California. These are non-CalPERS, non-CalSTRS. They're not related to the state plans. They were mainly 1937 at county retirement systems along with a few charter city retirement systems. And so we looked at results there because of course I was coming from S&P. I had this risk framework in mind. I had done all this survey information across the nation. And I said, all right, now that I'm working in California states, let's apply this here and let's see how well plans are doing uh, across California. So uh, all plans within the survey, they targeted 100% funding. That's pretty much default in California. On average, they were 85% funded today. So when you look at plans across the nation, the average is the low 70s. So significantly better funded on average today in the, with these plans across California with strong assumptions as well. Uh, discount rates right around 7% and generational mortality for most plans. So I, I'm gonna try to go through this quickly. So hopefully you can bear with that. So this is just looking at amortization across these 16 plans. We were looking at average, effective average amortization. And some plans were extremely low, which meant they were anticipating paying off their unfunded liability um, over a very short window. Other plans were a bit higher. And you had one plan, this plan 15, that was over 20 years, which was at least for S&P, that was the, they were looking for amortization schedules under 20 years. And that plan was 22 so it's interesting when you look at the next slide, this is the effective, uh, how effective the contribution is looking at positive amortization. That same plan that had 22 years left on it was the single plan that had negative amortization. You can see plan 15 was negative half a percent. So they weren't fully paying off the interest on their unfunded liability. The plans up towards the front, one through seven, one through eight, 
Those are plans that had very short effective amortization schedules. And as a result, you could see in any given year, they were paying 11.5, 10.9, 9.2, a large percentage of their unfunded liability off. They're making significant progress towards full funding. In fact, if you take an average of all 16 plans, on average, these plans were paying just under 4% of their unfunded liability per year. Now, S&P had a minimum funding progress metric, which wanted plans to pay at least 1 30th or 3.33, and barely any plans at the state level did. But on average here, you have plans passing that metric. So that was very encouraging for me as I looked at plans across California. Moving right along, just two more examples real quick. Um, this is actually how we project out amortization payments, unfunded liability payments over time at Siegel. So we like to give some transparency behind what are the reasons for the payments. So anytime there's a gain or loss, maybe it's from investments, a good investment year would be a gain. So that'd be a credit. You'd see a green bar below the line that, ex that extends out into the future. And if you have a loss, a bad investment year, that'd be a green bar above the line that would contribute to more unfunded liability that needs to be paid off. And then you have assumption changes. Maybe a plan went from 7.5 to 7 in their discount rate, and that's going to typically increase the unfunded liability in the payment. So that'll be above the line. So you add all these together, and you have some offsetting from the gains, and that black line going across is the net payment that is made across time. And the the why I love this example, this is a real plan in California, is they had a large unfunded liability 15 years ago, and they adopted 15-year layered amortization. So they said, we're going to pay off our current unfunded liability in 15 years. That was that what you see in red, the restart amortization. And so 15 years ago, they decided to do this. 2017 was the second to last year. 2018 was the last year. And then that was simply fully paid off. That unfunded liability from the initial layer was gone. And as a result, not only their plan is better funded as a result, but you can see the contributions drop down by about a third in terms of amortization. In contrast to that, if you look at this next example, now these this plan adopted 20-year amortization, which is still, it's not a bad amortization. It's as a level percentage of pay. So it, it increases a bit over time in contrast to CalPERS new policy, but they also only adopted this a few years ago. So this is an example where it was adopted much more recently. It's a bit longer. So that initial layer still has a long ways to go before it's paid off. So this is a contrast uh, that the graph I showed at the previous example was a bit more proactive in setting up this, this layered conservative amortization schedule. This plan is doing it, so that's a good thing that they're going to do it. And you can see around year 2031, 2032, that is fully paid off. The entire red is fully paid off, and, and the payment drops dramatically, which is because they've made significant progress and and making and, and heading towards full funding. So still a very important concept. But whether it was done a long time ago or, or more recently, it's important that they're actually on this plan to fully pay off their unfunded liability and make that progress. So that's just kind of what I wanted to show in terms of uh, county and city level across California that are not participating in CalPERS. In general, or in summary, these plans have strong governance, the governance that I talked about at the beginning, and, and they've worked towards practical funding discipline, more conservative assumptions in terms of discount rate, in terms of mortality or longevity projections, and then sticking to prudent contributions, which are extremely important to effectively deal with that unfunded liability. Because when unfunded liability is not dealt with, 
it becomes extremely expensive over time. And that can, can really hurt, of course, the budgets of, of state and local governments. And so finally, because this has been happening in California, funded positions are significantly above the national average for the survey that I just did. Uh, yet, of course, challenges remain. When you're trying to work at contributions being effective, like the question that was asked earlier, it comes at a high price at the present because effective contributions mean higher contributions in the, the short and in the medium term. And of course, in California, the cost of living that we have here adds to this challenge. And then finally, even the vested rights uh, debates, it adds to the challenge in terms of uncertainty around vested rights. I mean, we have cases right now that are in the Supreme Court that we're waiting to, to hear from and see those results. So just trying to give a, a broad summary from my perspective in California, strong government, strong funding discipline, that's improving over time, yet, yet challenges remain. And, and with that whirlwind, I'm, I'm going to pass it on, maybe another polling question or on, on to Dan. Sure. And, uh, and, and just briefly, we do have a couple more polling questions we'll get to right now as we kind of migrate over to Dan M., the finance director for Newport Beach. And so just to kick this off brief, real quick, we're just looking to find out um, how you guys talk about pensions at the board table and what budget priorities are. And to that end, um, you know, what is your and your organization's top budgetary concern? And we obviously give a, a couple choices and we didn't give you another because of time constraints. But, you know, if you fit into one of these, just select away and, and that will help us understand a little bit better um, of, of how you guys thinking about stuff and, and, and you know, help us understand and, and then respond to how you should be thinking about some things. Um, and on that note, uh, we'll just leave it open. We've been open for about 30 seconds. We'll leave it open for a little bit longer, but not the full minute. Um, just in the consideration of time, we want to make sure we get Dan's opinions um, out there and heard. Um, and so it's just been about 40 seconds, and I'll sh close this out and share it real quick. So pretty easy to tell that, you know, well, you're here and you're listening to this webinar, so you're participating in it. So it's a good thing that you think pension contributions are a big deal. Um, and of course, fund reserves and, and you know, all these other things are, are obviously concerns, but maybe not the top budgetary concern of the day. Um, but on that note, um, let me share it over to um, Dan M. And let me get you set up. We had a few more questions, but like again, in the sake of time, um, we'll just head over to Dan. Dan, the floor is yours. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. I'll try to move through these uh, quite rapidly if I if I can. Um, uh, you know, as Todd indicated, not only is it important to know where your plan is today, but uh, it's equally important to know where it's headed. Um, he also touched on, uh, you know, the, the contribution effectiveness and funding discipline is, is, is also very important. And I pose that question, is your plan on auto uh, payment? Because um, I, I do think there is a, the, a flaw in just making the payment on the minimum contribution. I'll try to make some illustrations uh, at how significant that can be. As Kurt mentioned, the old, uh, the new policies are much more efficient but they're only perspective. So you'd have to be mindful of that. You may have old, old layers that are still negatively amortizing, costing your agency a, a, a pretty penny. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, as, as um, you know, while we're still, uh, well, so when we look at these issues at the C level um, and, and, uh, 
in comparison to our neighbors, especially in Orange County, it's really important that we continue to proactively manage our, our, our pension plans. And so while the 2008 losses and subsequent changes in assumptions are old news now, uh, the repayment of the old losses still haven't peaked. Um, and you still may have losses, as I said, that are still growing. Um, and the and the your payments may not be exceeding your minimum interest payment and therefore negatively amortizing. And you know I've used uh, this chart in the past. Uh, the main points is basically it's, it's imperative to to look forward seven to ten years so you know what's coming up in in front of you. And these are just the old losses, and I find that quite concerning. Uh, because uh, the uh, uh, capital market assumptions looking forward aren't that rosy, despite where the equity markets are today, uh, th that's not a good indicator of uh, where they where return may be coming in the future. It's important to to you know as you as you look forward to start communicating with your board so they know. Um, you know that there are less funds likely available to fund programs and you need to start accommodating those increases in your budget today and on a practical basis um so this is kind of a survey of orange county plans and i i don't mean to pick on any one agency but i picked a plan that had a similar ual balance as newport beach so our, our unfunded liability is currently $318 million uh, uh, on, on a roll-forward basis to, to the new fiscal year. And it will take us $514 million to pay that off um, over the remaining term. When we look at Garden Grove, they've got a slightly lower UAL than the city of Newport Beach. But you can see, based on... Um, their current plan and the old amortization policies, they'll actually pay quite a bit more than the city of Newport Beach, um, uh, totaling 589,000. So um, it, it's a savings of $75 million in, in interest payments that your community might not otherwise have to pay if you're proactively managing these bases. So. Uh, it is very important to, to, to look at that. Uh, some of the other things that I, you know, noted is, well, you know, our crude liability is uh, countywide is growing at a rate of, of 6.3%, and yet our revenues are growing at a rate of 2.6%. Uh, and you can see that uh, many plans, their accrued liability is, is seven to eight times their general fund revenues. So that, that's alarming to me too. So uh, we do need to pay attention. I think the days of just picking picking up your plan and looking at your contribution rates, um, you, you really need to spend more time uh, looking at, uh, and, at your contributions. I told you I'm concerned about the capital market assumptions uh, looking forward. Uh, this was the latest, I think in, in June of this year, CalPERS is sort of recalibrating, at least uh, their consultants are, of, of what um, the expected rate of return may be over the next uh, over next 10 year period. And, you know, that that is concerning. While CalPERS has a very long investment horizon, uh, I think you have to ask yourself, 
over the next ten, five to ten years, are you in a position um, to tolerate further investment turbulence? Um, you know, to, to you know, are you in a position to, on top of the 2008 losses, start accumulating and paying off the new losses that are likely to occur based on the capital market assumptions moving forward? Um, I think Todd mentioned, or Kurt mentioned, that they're going to be reviewing their capital market assumptions uh, starting in June 2020, and that should be very telling, and that will lead to probably board decisions probably in December, January, February of, of, of uh, towards the end of the year. So um, while it's possible um, that there is a path to 7%, and this year is still looking pretty good, um, do you really want to build your budget around um, that uh, premise or assumption that they will continue to earn 7%? Um, and as I said, over, you know, while I have a 60-year horizon, if the outlook for the next uh, 5 to 10 years is to underperform that benchmark, and these are just my assumptions, we know that 10-year closed yesterday at 1.38% and 28% of their portfolio is on in fixed income. So I think it's going to be really tough. And this is roughly a 60-40, 60% equity, 40% uh, fixed income portfolio. It, I, I think it could be difficult to earn 7% consistently over the, over the next 10 years. Um, and so what can you do about it? Um, you know, the, the CalPERS actual eval um, does include a 1% uh, uh, sensitivity uh, analysis. It's worth taking a look at. It's pretty scary, but you should at least look at it um, and have an idea of what impact that would have on your plan, either on just the normal cost. Maybe you want to start funding your normal cost at um, at, at, at the 6% level, um, if you were to take the Big Bang Theory and say, we're going to assume that assumption moving into the forward, uh, all the way into the future, um, it's a, it's a much, much bigger pill to swallow uh, there. Uh, we do something slightly different. We took kind of split the, the difference here. Gosh, I apologize. Um, so we took our, our, our plan assets and assumed the expected shortfall over a one to 10 year period of time and what those losses would accumulate to. And then we said, okay, well, how much would we have to set aside today over a 10, 15 or 20 year period so that I could recover those future anticipated losses? Now, that, that's a agency to agency personal decision, but it's something I think you ought to consider and watch those for, uh, future capital assumptions as, as they come out. Um, the last thing we do uh, to help articulate to our board members is what our plan would look like under a number of different scenarios. The last capital market assumption was 6.1%, and so that was our baseline projection um, and our funding funded, because of the number of funded uh, fresh starts that we've uh, um, done. Um, we're still improving even under uh, underperforming asset uh, circumstances, but you should work with your actuary and and take a look 
at what your plan might do in various scenarios, assuming a kind of a, you know, in this case, we just used a straight line assumption for the next 10 years, um, at, you know, either uh, four, five, six percent, um, and then, you know, well, great news if they earn seven percent consistently over the next 10 years. But, but something you really need to do uh, to, to be responsible for your organization, I think the days of being on autopilot are past us. Uh, when we haven't paid our 2008 losses, we really need to be concerned about uh, what the earnings um, will be over the next 10 years. Um, our plans are extremely sensitive to, to uh, investment earnings, have, has the number one impact. So um, that concludes uh, my presentation. Um, and uh, go ahead. I got it, Dan. So if they, so yeah, I mean, so we're running just a little bit late, so I, I you know, we'll, we'll be brief, but it's still complete. Um, number one, I wanted to thank everyone, you know, as Dan just mentioned, and I'm sure there's a lot more we can all talk about when it comes to, oh, sorry, excuse me for just one second. There we go. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously we can be talking about this all day and, you know, all the individuals on this panel, you know, this is what this is what they're doing and this is what they, they discuss and 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 debate about and and think about on, on a fairly regular basis. So obviously um, there's a lot to discuss here. And, and based on some of the questions that we were getting um, from participants, there's some questions we weren't able to get to, but I'll be working with the panelists in the background to make sure that everyone's questions get answered. Um, but there's obviously a big need for this discussion to happen, not only today, uh, but on a recurring basis. And so one of the things we want to make sure um, you guys talk about is you talk about this at the board table and you talk about it with your coworkers and and other people within your organizations about you know this is not something that just needs to be covered within a webinar or just with your actuary or with your auditors or what have you you know these are very important questions that we're dealing with that have huge impacts on your organizations um, but I just want to take the opportunity to, to, to really thank Todd and Kurt and Dan for their time you know the last few weeks in putting this presentation together and of course this morning um, and to that end you know know, if, if there were any action items that we could tell you to um, to take back to your organizations as you leave here today, it's most notably to communicate to management and the decision makers the major points to understand. And, you know, uh, you know, in working with the panelists on this, you know, Dan specifically shared a lot of information that he shares with his finance committee and his board. And it was incredibly impressive how uh, maybe not impressive how complicated the information was, but unfortunately that sort of um, communications are necessary to really help translate um, the stuff we talk about today and the stuff that we understand to be big issues for our organizations and make sure that the decision makers that we deal with on a regular basis understand those as well. Um, but also learn lessons from the past and from other states as we talked about Illinois and some other states. Um, they've made some very bad decisions that, you know, fortunate for us and unfortunate for them, we can really learn from and utilize that to to help our communities understand the importance of continuing on the path forward that we, we've set them on. Um, and connecting the pension conversation to the budget, to the CAFR, and overall focus on the overall the financial foundation and the, and, the, uh, and the underpinnings of the community. And we talked about you know, some of the major budgetary concerns for the organization and how we, obviously pensions were, were you know, very high on that list, but maybe not always 
you know, in the top three. And so just to make sure that you're always reminding the, the uh, members of your organization, the elected officials and the senior staff, that the pension obligations of the organization do have a huge impact. Um, and most notably, even just talk to each other, whether it's through webinars or through panelists or through CSMFOs, other programs on training. You know, we're trying to build a network with members um, uh, not only you know, not only can you get benefit from these webinars and 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 asking questions of these panelists, but really talking to each other and learning from each other and what other people are doing and what they're not doing. More importantly, um, but on that note, I, you know, there are some other resources that we have that go beyond just today's webinar. Um, I encourage you then to research and to learn about if you haven't already about all the different opportunities CSMFO has, um, whether it's conference webinars or in-person training. And on that end, um, I just to wrap up, I thank you for your participation today. Again, thank you to all the panelists. And, and to remind you that while CSMFO just had their conference just a few weeks ago, that uh, it, it's, we're getting ready for a conference next year. And so if you haven't made your reservations already, go right ahead. And on that, we'd like to thank you for again for your participation and your attention this morning. And good luck. Thank you very much.